I think I'm supposed to be on right now. Sorry about not being really smooth in the transition there. Um, hey, let's do a uh, meditative moment. I'm going to try to be coordinated and read from my phone while I share a screen with you for a little part of it. Uh, Lectio Divina, which is Latin for sacred reading, is a contemplative way of reading, praying, and taking a long, loving look at scripture or other significant text. In Lectio Divina, we learn to listen for and seek God's presence in word and silence. We're going to practice a kind of Lectio Divina together this morning. But first, we're going to start by looking at the last little bit of Colossians 3.11, which I'm going to read in several translations. Following this, we will practice a contemplative sit with a phrase that reflects on this verse. First, I'm going to read the last phrase of Colossians 3.11 from four different translations. Um, am I sharing my... Oh. Um, as I read from these four different translations, let the feeling of this verse sink into your head, your heart, and your body. Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all that matters, and Christ lives in all of us. Everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. Christ is all and in all. Keep letting this sink in as you take a deep, slow breath now. Notice any tightness in your shoulders and neck and allow any tension in your muscles to relax. Allow your back to rest in an aligned neutral position and ground yourself to allow your breathing to settle into an easy rhythm. Then close your eyes and repeat quietly after me. I am not trying to achieve anything. I am simply becoming aware of this moment. I am becoming aware of my presence in Christ in this moment. As you notice any distractions, thoughts, memories, judgments, decisions, or ideas cross your mind, just let them go. And focus instead on your moment-by-moment -moment experience of being present to what is. Repeat after me again, I am in Christ. We are all in Christ. As you can continue in this contemplative state, we're gonna practice our Lectio Divina. I'm gonna read a phrase which reflects on Colossians 3.11. I'm gonna read it several times with instructions for each reading. And the phrase is, my loving eyes see Christ in all. 
With the first repetition, allow yourself to settle into the exercise and familiarize yourself with the words. My loving eyes see Christ in all. For the second repetition, listen from a centered heart space and notice what stands out to you. My loving eyes see Christ in all. With the next reading, reflect on how this word or phrase is connected to your current life experience. My loving eyes see Christ in all. Just focus on the idea so that it engages your body, your heart, and your awareness of the physical and unseen world around you. With the final reading, respond with a prayer or expression of what you have experienced. And just invite the wisdom and grace of God to support you in places of unknowing, confusion, desire, or hope. My loving eyes see Christ in all. I'm just going to give you another minute. And it might be helpful to speak a response aloud or in your heart or even uh, jot down a note that represents your response. Great. We are just going to invite you to turn your cameras back on if you turned it off. And we are going to pray for Karina as we transition to hear what she's got this morning. So God, thank you for your presence in us. Thank you for your presence in everything and everyone around us. Thank you for your presence in Karina. Thank you for the communication between her and us and that uh, Christ is in each of us and communicating amongst ourselves. And we just ask for your presence to show itself deep in our hearts as Karina shares, be with her and give her the freedom to share what she needs to share and uh, our spirits, the freedom to move towards what you want to accomplish in our hearts while she shares. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, everybody, welcome here. Really, it's so great to be with you this morning. Um, I, I just think it's, you know, this is so strange to be meeting by Zoom still after all this time, and yet... I feel such a connection to all of you. And so I'm just grateful for every one of you that have shown up. Um, it's good to gather together, even in this 
strange way. So it's good to be here. So back when our kids were tinies, we had five little ones. We went on a little vacation to Seaside, Oregon. Remember those vacations? Yeah, when you could leave and cross the border and go and do stuff. Yeah, me too. But let's not get distracted. Before we left, um, I made pumpkin muffins. So I wouldn't have to spend all day in the kitchen while on vacation. And at this point in my life, um, I quadruple batched like just everything. So I made something like eight dozen muffins. And I am honestly Proverbs 31ing the crap out of my life in this moment. In fact, I happen to know that another friend of mine and her family and kids are going to be at the same place at the same time. And because I am so blessed among women, I am going to bring a little surprise pack of muffins for them too. Bless. So my freezer is full of muffins, my vehicle is loaded with muffins, my kids are looking forward to muffins, I am winning. So we drive to Seaside, we get all the things set up, I drop off the muffins at my friend's condo, we all sleep, or whatever it is called that you do when you bring kids on vacation. But we wake up the next morning, we sit down for breakfast, I take a bite of the blessed muffin and my eyes grow wide with shock and horror because I have forgotten all the sugar. These are not delicious, spicy morsels of autumn that melt in your mouth. No, no, they're flavorless and dry freakish pumpkin pucks. And I look around the table and I can tell this isn't just my taste buds deceiving me. And these are little muffin shaped disappointments and I've given them away. It's the thought that counts, I don't know. And I have more of them awaiting me at home in the freezer. And you know, you know as well as I do, no matter what jam or icing or sweetness you try and put on top of these abominations, they will never be good. I had a lot of disappointing breakfasts in my future. Jesus, be near. There are few things as disappointing as being hungry, taking a bite, and not being at all satisfied. Which leads me to the beatitude we are discussing this week. Matthew 5 and 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, or many of your translations will say righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, for they will be filled. The problem is, we often think of righteousness and justice as totally separate things. And then we interpret scripture and life according to those separations. I think in our context, we often think that like justice is something that is served. And it's often posed over against things like mercy or love. I mean, I'm sure we've all heard this one. Well, sure, God is love, but he's also just. Like these virtues are in a schoolyard spat and somebody needs to intervene and give a timeout so that they can think about what they've done. We think of justice like an out there principle. And if you get justice, you get what you deserve. And the guy that did you wrong pays for it. And he gets what he deserves. Crime and punishment. Because somebody's got to pay or it can't be justice. This is how our legal system works. So it's not surprising when we hear or translate it that way, that that's what we think of. But not so to the ancient world it was written to. What about the idea of righteousness? A lot of translations use righteousness. 
we think about it like it's a personal attribute or experience. Or maybe every time you hear it, you think of crush the turtle. It's righteous. In fact, a lot of our translations will make it sound like righteousness in this verse is about my personal rightness with God. It's a translation problem when it sounds like blessed are those who are tight with God. Blessed are those who know Jesus is their bay and because of him, they're righteous. But that's not what the people who heard this sermon would have thought. That's not what Jesus invites us to be hungry and thirsty for. They understood righteousness and justice as being one in the same. They're literally the same word. It just, you can translate it either way, but it is the same word in Greek and in Hebrew. They're completely interchangeable and really not at all personal. Justice and righteousness happens when the relationship of all things are brought back into correct order. I want to say that one more time because this is really important. To the people that heard it, relation or righteousness and justice happens when the relationship of all things is brought back into correct order. It's a restorative term. Think jubilee as outlined in the book of Leviticus, which is God's dream for human flourishing. Think shalom, peace where everything is in its place. So when it says, blessed are those who deeply desire justice and righteousness, it's with the understanding that our words, our worlds, our freedom, our justice and righteousness are bound up in one another. If someone is experiencing less than jubilee, if there is no shalom, we are all suffering. If a system is causing harm to one of us, it harms all of us. And notice that the beatitude doesn't say, blessed are those who like and enjoy righteousness, or blessed are those who enforce and enact justice. This is hungering and thirsting. It's, it's admitting like, uh, it's an expression of like a primal need. Nothing else can happen if your hunger and thirst is not satisfied. The invitation is to participate with God, to bring about the restoration of all things and pursue it like it's essential and necessary for our very life. We are hungry for justice and righteousness and following the Jesus way will bring satisfaction. So what is the Jesus way? How does Jesus pursue justice and righteousness? So we're going to do a case study from a story out of the, out of the book of Mark, chapter 5, 21 to 43. In just a minute, Megan is going to read for me. But before we start and listen, let's remember the context of who this was written about and written to. This was written to the early church, which generally comprised of the nuns and duns of society. In both cases, uh, in both societies, it's, it's extremely hierarchical. You've got like the big deal Roman rulers at the top, and then the big deal religious Jewish rulers and military that kind of uphold the state implicitly. And then the important men and the little less important men. And then you keep going down the scale and you get to the widows, the orphans, the sick, the slaves. The ones listening are going to have more in common with the bottom rung than the top tier. 
Couple of other important things to note in the context of those originally in the stories and those listening. And Megan, you can get ready to share here in just a minute. Women and girls were not well regarded. They were property. I know we know this, but we forget. So when I speak, I'll frequently replace the word woman with the word couch or table or an object so that I can hear the disruptive nature of the story correctly. Not surprisingly, couches were not allowed to study scripture, could not testify in court. Their stories were very unreliable and unbelievable. They were considered unclean, untouchable for the entire time that they were menstruating and clean or unclean, it was illegal for them to talk to any man besides their husband in public. So the second thing around sickness, in this culture, if there was sickness in you, in your body or in your family, it was a sign of sin and punishment from God, or so they thought. Wealth was a sign of God's favor, allegedly. Poverty was also a punishment from God, apparently. All three will be featured in the story. These are motivating factors for many of our characters and they are all areas that need realignment to be brought back to God's true design for a just and righteous world. Remember that Jesus is here to set the record straight on what God is really like and has always been like. Jesus is hungry for justice and righteousness that is not angry or retributive as power and tradition would have them believe. He's here for the restoration of all things. Megan, would you read? Okay, can you hear me okay? Okay. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. And the frightened woman trembling at the realization of what had happened to her came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messenger, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw 
much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave and he took the girl's father or the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Uh, Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. Fantastic, thank you. So we're gonna do our best to take off our Western lenses of personal justice or personal rightness. And we're going to look to see how power is disrupted to bring all things and people back into their God-designed relationship of love between one another. Like one of my teachers says, when we change our lens, we change what we see. The point in all of this is not to condemn ourselves, but to free ourselves, to see how Jesus disrupts and brokers power, and then learn to join him in the work. So Jesus has come from a Gentile city. So he is unclean before the story even begins, according to Jewish law. So remember that this story was written to Jews, not Christians. There's really no Christians at this point. This is good news for us. He's unbothered by the mess of humanity and the arbitrary rules and the way we divide people into categories of us, as in the good ones, or in this case, the Jews, or and them, the bad ones, or in this case, the Gentiles. And he, he's really unconcerned by how people that are religious or otherwise perceive him. I wonder, going back to the Beatitude, I wonder if that's why the Beatitudes, when Jesus is giving this message, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, rather than blessed are the Christians, blessed are the Jews who hunger and thirst, blessed are God's team. I, I know that I have certainly read blessed are the Christians into the text before, but it doesn't say that. It says blessed are those, as in anyone who is like this, anyone who does this, they are blessed by God when they join with the work Jesus is doing. How's that for a little power disruption? Maybe the point is not whose side you're on or were born into, but the way you're following. Everyone who follows the Jesus way of justice and righteousness can be satisfied. Everyone can participate in creating a more just world. The point is, are you hungry for the justice Jesus is hungry for? Man, that sounds like good news, doesn't it? I can stop sorting people and start following the way of Jesus. And so can your neighbor and so can your friend. This is good news. Jesus is not afraid of mess and being perceived as unclean. It doesn't prevent him from being Jesus-y for one second. Contrast that with Jairus, the synagogue leader. He is super clean. He's Mr. Clean. He's a religious leader. And if you read the previous chapters in Mark, it's safe to assume that he and his colleagues are, are not really on team Jesus. Jairus is a big deal a top of the pyramid guy. And he's part of a religious and social system that likes their big dealness and their ability to follow purity laws and be holy and clean and right before God, or so they think. I don't know if Jairus is hungry for justice, but I imagine that having a sick or a dead daughter 
might not look great for a religious leader. Like what sin is this dude hiding, right? Jairus is full, but not satisfied. He's been eating disappointment muffins for breakfast his whole life. Power at the expense of others will do that. It's significant that Jairus starts on his knees and he does visibly lower and divest himself of his religious and social power to even ask Jesus for help. Or maybe Jesus is drawn to help because Jairus asks him to help save his daughter and Jesus consistently wants to disrupt dynamics that devalue women. It sounds like this, Jesus, will you come save my couch? Justice disrupts power to bring restoration. This is the righteousness Jesus is after. Jesus knows that Jairus, Jairus actually needs something. And it's not just that his daughter needs to be made well. Hierarchy creates poverty at every level. Jesus wants to disrupt the harm it's causing Jairus as well. Jairus needs to feel his hunger to expand his definition of who is worthy and how people are valued. And Jesus in his goodness is there to walk him through it as he follows a path of emptying again and again and again until he finds it. May God in his goodness show us where we're stuck in hierarchy and have excess power. May we see how it prevents natural hunger for communal justice and righteousness. While they are on their way to this urgent matter, a bloody woman interrupts the story. She has no power and she knows it. She's a couch person, no value, no rights, no agency. She's sick and she's been suffering for 12 years. She is unclean, not just a couch, but a dirty couch. She has used up all her money, so she's punished trying to be well, but everywhere she goes, she cannot find justice. In fact, the more she tries, the less justice she has. The response to her life situation from someone in Jairus's category would just be, ew, sinner. She lacks physical justice, social justice, religious justice, economic justice. She is hungry though. She is starving and she knows something about Jesus that all the clean, healthy, socially, financially, and religiously secure people haven't figured out yet that Jesus is a power broker. He uses his power to restore dignity, maybe even to a couch like me, she thinks to herself. So she literally risks her life, reaches out, and touches him, and without a word or a glance from him, just by laying hands on his laundry, Jesus submits to her need, and she is instantly healed. And the text says, she knows this. Even the writer of the story believes the word of this couch person. It's downright scandalous. And also notice suddenly, Jesus has a new conviction. He stops the urgent journey he's traveling with Jairus and looks to find the most important person in the story right now. Jesus is hungry for justice that disrupts our ideas of who is worthy. And he is willing to disrupt urgent timelines so that we can learn important truths. 
This change of plans also requires Jairus to stop. Jairus, it's time to go lower. Empty a little more. Jesus loves Jairus so much, doesn't he? He's changing his orientation to power. Jairus has to wait. Waiting is hard work when we find ourselves in the center of social, religious, and economic circles. It's disruptive to have somebody from the margin and the bottom rung become a big deal. Now, I don't think that Jesus is irritated when he asked, who touched me? I wonder if when this woman reaches out and the power just leaves Jesus, what if he had a feeling of fullness? Deep satisfaction overtakes him because he knows that the scales have tipped towards jubilee and justice a little more. And he wants to find out who this person is. So remember, she's just broken the law. And to answer Jesus and to talk to him in public is also illegal. Everything about her is illegal. Everything. So Jesus puts her in a cage and says, she should have known better. Oh, wait, no. No, that's not what this text says. Sometimes disrupting power looks like causing good trouble, necessary trouble, as John Lewis would say. Jesus is rewarding her rule breaking. I wonder if we saw our kids' bad behavior as requests for justice. That would be so inconvenient to dress the power dynamic at home. I don't know if I'm up for it. <laughs> I don't know. But it says, though she was afraid and trembling, she confesses. Not, not just, oh, it was me. But in, in, in some translations, it says she tells the entire truth, the whole story of her life. And Jesus, again, pours out his social and religious power to listen and believe the testimony of this couch, this woman. And then he says to her, daughter, and it's not a name, but it is a title. It signifies belonging. Daughter, your faith, your belief has healed you. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. May we be hungry like Jesus to submit our power for the restoration of the broken, hurting, oppressed, and discarded people in society. While Jesus is blessing this daughter of God, it says a messenger comes to Jairus and says, your daughter is dead. It's over. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Remember the meaning the religious community had attached to sickness. Jairus, I think, has just been revealed to be a big fat sinner. Maybe this is the messenger saying, you're finished. Your career is over, man. Just walk away. But because Jesus loves Jairus and his daughter and this woman so much, he asks Jairus one more time to give away some more power and now learn from this bloody couch woman. Jesus has just said to her, you've had great faith. Your belief has healed you. And he turns to Jairus and basically tells him, you need what she has. 
have faith, just believe. And I think Jairus gets it. So they leave the crowd because justice is not a spectator sport and they start a new journey. Same people, new journey. I believe Jairus has a new goal in mind to save his daughter, not his reputation. When we're hungry for justice like Jesus, what and how and who we value will change. The left out become leaders and leaders become learners. Mutual submission replaces hierarchy and it won't matter anymore what the crowd thinks because we're full like Jesus is full and we're hungry like Jesus is hungry. And before we get to the happy ending, I wanna notice the new crowd weeping and wailing in the courtyard of Jairus's home. I was curious about the difference between this crowd and their mourning and weeping versus the mourning of the crowd in the story of Lazarus that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Like Jesus weeps for Lazarus, but here he kind of looks at the crowd and says, ain't nobody got time for that. Why? Look, I don't know for sure, but here's my conviction. I think Jesus is calling their BS. He's saying, don't tell me you're sad for the loss of a little girl. You don't value women or girls. Cut the act. He's too hungry for real justice to join them. Going through the motions of hunger is not the same as pouring yourself out for the sake of righteousness. So finally, we get to the room where Jairus's daughter is, his dead daughter, and Jesus simply walks in lays his unclean hands on her now unclean body and tells her, daughter, rise up. That little girl was dead. She didn't even know that she needed justice. But Jesus knows all the life she was created for. And just look at that. When Jesus restores her, she wakes up and she's hungry. Participating in kingdom justice will wake us up to live fully and to deeply desire the things Jesus is hungry for so that we can give what we've received. And here's the truth. We, we have different areas in our lives where we play the parts of all of these characters in the story. So it's important that we take time to really see who we are and how we can stir up our hunger for participation with Jesus in the restoration of all things. There are some areas in our life where we're blind to our power. And the invitation is for us to look for ways to empty ourselves so that others can be lifted up. And like Jairus, it might require more letting go than we thought or more waiting. What would emptying yourself of power look like this week? Maybe it doesn't look like giving a coffee to a homeless person, but instead giving them money, giving them economic power and choice, even if we don't agree with that choice. Or maybe it means learning from someone whose life looks nothing at all like yours and believing their whole story when they tell it to you. Or maybe it'll look like learning from people who are following Jesus but aren't Christians. Maybe we need to learn to be givers of justice and righteousness. However you challenge yourself here, Jairus and Jesus show us that you never walk this road alone. There are times that we need to know that we're worthy of justice and righteousness. 
Maybe we're like the woman who's been relegated to the margins. Maybe you've trusted people to help you and, and really all that's happened is things have gotten worse. Or maybe you're living under the weight of labels and unjust laws and broken structures. Maybe something in you needs to be healed. Maybe we need to learn to be good receivers of justice and to ask for what we need. You need to know that Jesus is hungry for your justice. If that sounds like you, maybe you need to, I don't know, take a step, sign up for a class, read a book that's going to encourage you, or ask for help because Jesus believes your life is worth pouring into. Or maybe you need to make a call and talk to a counselor or a therapist or a trusted friend and tell them the whole truth about your life. May you be believed. Jesus will stop everything to look you in the eye and call you beloved. May your faith rise and heal you in Jesus' name. And then there's places maybe where we look like we're hungry for justice, but we're just kind of mailing it in. Let's forgive ourselves and do better. It's easy to get caught up in this one, isn't it? Slacktivism feels so good and changes so little. We can post memes and get on our knees before crowds of oppressed people all we want, and it won't restore a damn thing if we don't see that true justice will cost us our power and our privilege in a million different ways. So spend some time this week asking God, yourself, your friends, what your lane of justice looks like, because it's different for everyone. We need everyone. Trust me, there is economic poverty, political poverty, religious poverty, poverty, geographical poverty, social poverty, physical poverty. It all needs justice. It all needs to be brought back into God's dream for humanity. We can't do it all, but we can all do it together. So in one of those areas, there will be somewhere in your pain and your passion where they intersect. Lean into it. Let it cost you time, money, social clout. Have a tough conversation. Read a really good book and pay attention to what it's saying. Start to notice it in the world. Give money. Elevate and learn from people outside of your circle. Cooperate with people, not in your demographic and faith experience. If they're hungry for justice, you can link arms with them and follow them where Jesus leads. There is enough of Jesus for everyone. Finally, maybe, maybe this is a wake-up call. Maybe you've fallen asleep and didn't know you were hungry. Maybe you just didn't know you were made to live, like really live. But Jesus knows you were created to be loved and from that love to bring justice into this world. Who needs something called back to life again? May you hear the call of Jesus to rise up and live. When he touches you and you rise up, hunger will follow. Jesus invites us to create a just world that includes all people and leaves everyone satisfied. Our liberation is bound up in one another. 
May we have eyes to see injustice and unrighteousness, and may it cause us to turn around and change our convictions because we know deep in our bones we were created to do something about it. So I just want you to maybe take a deep breath. If it feels right, put your hand on your heart, close your eyes. And I just want you to imagine Jesus sitting across from you. What's your, what's Jesus saying to you about joining him in justice? Joining him in the practice of justice. What do you need to let go of? Where are you standing in our hierarchy structures? Can you come down? Do you need to rise up? Jesus is so good. He'll gently lead you. He'll love you and teach you and bring people into your life that will direct your journey of justice. Christ in all. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all people to experience the justice and right relationships they were created for. For they walk in the way of Jesus and will deeply be satisfied on the journey. Amen.